Thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. This is a discussion with Google Open Web Advocate Chris Messina. It was recorded directly following his session on activity streams at South by Southwest. And uh, I'm going to play it for you in its entirety after this. On May 6th and 7th, 2010, in New York City, co-chairs Elizabeth Albrecht and Eric Schwartzman, with the support of PRSA, bring you the third annual Digital Impact Conference, featuring keynote presentations from Gabriel Stricker, Director of Global Communications and Public Affairs at Google, Jennifer Preston, Social Media Editor of The New York Times, and Jeremiah Oyang, Analyst and Partner at The Altimeter Group. To save $100 on admission, visit ontherecordpodcast.com for the promo code before you register. I was talking to this researcher at the Connective IT Lab at Boulder. Okay. And uh, she had done this study with her grad students about how uh, students at VT had used Facebook on the day of the massacre. Oh, right. And what they did was they plotted on a timeline hmm. the communications that transpired on Facebook yep. against the official uh, university communication. Interesting, yeah. And we saw that there was about a 90-minute gap there uh-huh. and that the students crowdsourcing with their parents abroad and other people mm-hmm. in remote locations were able to figure out with 100% accuracy the names of 21 of the 22 students who had been murdered wow. 90 minutes before VT got out with, wow. uh, with the news. And um, it, it, the study was not an acu- it was not a, uh, assassination of Virginia Tech because they have to notify next of kin mm. before they can come out with an initial no. thing. So there is that just inherent delay. But what she said in this research was that companies need to figure out a way to embrace the social media back channel without necessarily endorsing it. So the question for you is, you know, how do you see businesses mm. embracing activity streams, open source activity streams? Yeah, wow. You know, I, I guess I thought you were going to go in a different direction, uh, starting with that example. But um, I'm interested in whatever comes to mind. Yeah, no, of course. Go in a different direction or not with it? No, no, no. I know it's a good start. Actually, I think that it it speaks to the way that the the social web and social networks in general are, you know, changing people's expectations, right? So, I think it would have been an odd student out who wouldn't have known what was going on, you know, before the official campus news. And, uh, you know, because of social media and the social web and how connected people are now, and especially on college campuses where it's a, you know, pretty close-knit community, you know, with similar, you know, kind of goals and objectives and so on. So, there's an alignment there that I think is very important. And that alignment also, I think, transfers into uh, a business workplace in a way that's, you know, not direct per se, but uh, very similar. And by that I mean that within an organization, you know, of various scales, there is a need for information to flow. And I think, at least from what I've heard, and again, Google's the first company that I, the big company that I worked for, um, 
there are strange kind of you know boundaries, artificial boundaries that oftentimes get set up um, within a, within an organization. And what I've seen on, on the flip side of that, working in open source communities, is that when information is made much more transparent and made to flow, that people are able to get their work done more quickly, more effectively, with less you know um, stoppages in their process, and people are able to pursue things that actually perhaps they enjoy doing, which means that they're going to be a you know happier, more productive um, worker. So given that, when it comes to activity streams, and I guess there, there is a little bit of a distinction between activity streams generally and you know news feeds, I think you know one of the things that probably I would imagine went unseen in this, this massacre case is all the private messages that were exchanged, whether it was direct messages via Twitter, messages via SMS, or messages um, between each other on email or Facebook. There's a lot of stuff that, that, that um, is part of the fabric of the social web, but that is not visible. So the thing that I think is interesting about organizations, and especially email and email culture, is that email specifically was designed as a point-to-point communication mechanism. You, know, you can add other people in as audience members or conversants in the mix, but there's never been an email address in email that allows you to send to everybody. And that is kind of the, the problem that the social web solves. So this works in, in two ways. Now, you know, when I say everyone, I guess I mean different publics. Because um, there's, of course, the public within the company, and there's the public that's outside of the organization, uh, the organizational walls, which is a different public. But let's presume that there are those two publics and that I'm able to articulate the difference between them for my purposes as an employee. Um, if I'm able to create some sort of message and then send it to everybody in the organization, but in a way that's passive, so as opposed to having it forced in everyone's inbox, but allowing it to be discoverable later on through search, let's say, or through modeling through activity streams, there are ways in which you can, I guess, replicate information through an organization with a lot less effort um, and a lot less, let's say, loss of fidelity or something like that. I guess what's been interesting to me specifically working on Buzz internally at Google is how much Buzz is used as an enterprise tool to help organize conversations and get people on the same page. There are a lot of the same mechanisms that Buzz has that email has. For example, um, you know, using the mentioning uh, nomenclature where you're like, you know, at some email address and it pings the person um, that you want to bring into a conversation, but it's much more emergent. Um, whereas an email thread kind of has to start out from the beginning as being here are all the people who are in this room. It's like we're scheduling a meeting and we all want to talk about the same thing. With Buzz, it's you can bring people into a conversation stream that's already been going on for some time that they were never privy to before in a format that actually reads chronologically. So for the first time, we're starting to see, I think, those types of social web um, behaviors become really useful from an enterprise perspective um, by modeling things that have gone on on kind of more consumer-oriented social networks for a while. Activity streams, as a mechanism for representing this kind of information, provides two things. One, it provides discovery as opposed to search. So if I'm just watching the stream, something very interesting might come my way, and I didn't even know that I was interested in it. So that's really important. Uh, The second piece is that it models behavior. So if you're seeing a lot of people engaging in the same types of activities or doing the same kinds of things because of the way the stream is designed and and built, then you yourself might think, oh, maybe that's something that I should do too, and maybe I should go do it. 
So if you can imagine that there's an organizational activity stream that says, oh, you know, there are a bunch of people turning in their quarterly reports or whatever, and you've totally forgotten about it. That allows you to see what other people are doing, model that behavior, and then go and do it yourself because you need to. Now, that's a very you know simple, st- stupid example, but you can imagine much more complex things happening, for example, on a team. And on the one hand, there's the human consumption of, of streams. So if I go back to the open source world, um, I might go into a GitHub repository, for example, and and GitHub, is, GitHub is, uh, have you heard of SourceForge? Yes, I've gone there to so these are Audacity, but yeah. I don't know what it is. So the developers of Audacity go to SourceForge, and that's where they share their code. So okay. they use SourceForge as their sort of micro-social network to uh, write up specifications or, you know, how to do certain things with the software or whatever for other developers. Okay. So if I'm a developer and I have an idea and I think that I could improve Audacity, I go to SourceForge, I get their source code, which they've shared to the world, I make my improvement, and then I submit it back to them. Okay, so that, that process is fairly well known, and that's the kind of thing that I'd love to see our organizations really try to build more support for. Specifically, GitHub, um, I bring up a, as a kind of you know new wave alternative to SourceForge. So it's github.com, and it's all based around the stream and the activity stream. So you can go in and you can follow different people's activities. Um, you can watch a repository of... Uh, you know, of projects. So, for example, if Audacity was on GitHub, I would go to that repository and I would watch it. And what that would mean is that when new things are added to that repository, they would show up in my stream. Kind of like the history on a Wikipedia page. Yeah, precisely. So, this, so watching is a way of kind of tuning in or listening to updates that happen in that context. Okay. Now, this happens on open source projects, but there's no reason why the same thing couldn't happen on any kind of project. So you're listening in, and when a coworker checks something in, or makes some change, or makes some kind of edit, that might actually trigger, you know, uh, a signal to you that it's time for you to do your work. Or you might have an agent in your in the system that is actually watching for certain types of things to happen, certain people to conduct certain activities, which then will trigger. Um, Responses from your social agent, essentially. So when you see a coworker, let's say, is out for the day, now you need, now you know that you need to do a certain thing, right? And you need to behave differently. Now, in the past, of course, maybe you know your coworker uh, um, would have called you or sent you an email or whatever, and that might still happen for a while. But the fact that you know the day before somebody might post to their their activity stream that you know they're not feeling so well, maybe they won't be coming in the next day or something like that. You can interact with them through the stream and essentially coordinate in a much more ad hoc basis and allow other people to know what's going on too because now if your coworkers see, oh, you know, it looks like you're going to be covering for this guy, well, I now know that I need to you know, react in this way, it allows for a level of coordination that hadn't happened before that doesn't have to go through management. So if we loop this all the way back around to the massacre that happened, I think it's through these streams where people started to see, oh my God, like something just happened. Now they now federate that information through their stream, people interact, people share information, and it fans out so much more rapidly than would otherwise happen because it's not going through a chain of command. So there's actually an interesting book on this um, called The Starfish and the Spider. The, the Starfish and the Spider um, by Ori Braffman. And um, in it, he talks about the distinctions between these top-down sort of militaristic organizational structures, which you know basically define the industrial age, compared with decentralized systems. systems that 
are able to reproduce and uh, self-heal just like a starfish can. So, you know, the, the, the metaphor essentially goes that, you know, if you crush the head of a spider, of course it dies. The legs are useless. If instead you take a starfish and you chop off a leg, it'll just grow a new starfish. So from an organizational perspective, if you can design your teams and your, your systems to be that type of, uh, you know, generative in that way, then your organization, as things change, as people move jobs, as they quit or whatever, can, um, I guess, respond much more quickly, which would ideally much less cost. But what that requires is for you to push a lot of responsibility and control down to the edges of the network as opposed to centralizing it at the top. And that's how you end up with a much faster-moving organization. So, for example, at Facebook, and I know this because I have friends there, you know, everybody has access to, to live running code. They, they also build stuff off of the live database. There's no like secondary replicated database that they work off of because there's so much data. It just wouldn't make sense. It would take two weeks to copy it. So instead, they build apps, you know, and they have certain ways of testing it to make sure it's not going to break stuff. But, but they're working with live data. That means that every single engineer and developer has equal access and can build really interesting, compelling things and then push it back up the stack to become part of the Facebook product, you know, within a week. And in fact, they do weekly pushes. And what that means is that if, let's say, the last week I've worked on a new feature that does, you know, something fairly simple, I don't have to wait six months to see that feature go into production. Instead, it's more organic. It's like, you know, growing a new layer of skin every year. It takes a long time to do that, but it's done, you know, cell by cell. So from an organizational architecture perspective, I think that activity streams are, in some ways, I guess, the the gel that binds all these different things together and that makes an organization that wants to move this fast actually capable of moving that fast. You mentioned this, you made this analogy of activity streams maybe replacing the photo album. This idea that, you know, I have these photo sure. albums and then now I can have this rich data about what music I was listening to. It's a great analogy. Yeah. Is there a similar analogy for what activity streams might be for businesses? What do they replace? Yeah, well... You know, I would say this. I think it's it's more of a restructuring of the flow of information because there's still a need for uh, constructs, structures, places. And so to be more concrete, there's still a need for photo albums. I still need to have a collection of stuff that I group together because that's how I remember it. I need to be able to get back to it. That said, as I'm organizing and, and grouping things and producing new content, if I can generate an activity stream of those things then that's where I think uh, emergent types of activities, responses, I guess, actions can occur. So previously, again, you know, you might have like taken two weeks to sort of like sit back, organize all your photos, do all these different things, you know, and then create this huge big dump of stuff all in one fell swoop. And that's okay, but given how much data is now being produced, there's also a need to chunk the data in much smaller bite-sized pieces so that you're organizing your day around the ability to consume information whenever you have a moment, right? So if I tried to go back and read, like, last week's tweets over the weekend, like you used to do, let's say, with a Sunday edition of the New York Times, it would probably take me a year, you know, because, you know, I'm following 1,500 people, and they're producing stuff every single second of the day. So there's no way that I can keep up. So instead, you learn to sort of attenuate yourself to dropping into the stream and then pulling out. 
and dropping in and pulling out and you know, you know kind of like pulling these signals as you can it's, it's what we call ambient intimacy but is that any different than the stop order I put on my New York Times while I'm out of town I mean I'm not going to go back home and read those papers they're old right I think it's it's a it's it's similar but when, I, I guess when we're talking about you know you asked you know what does this replace um, I think it's less about what it replaces and more about how it creates new opportunities. The top-rated, longest-running social media communications training program comes to Los Angeles this August 2010. Bring your laptop, log on, and learn the ins and outs of effective social media communications and search engine optimization. Reserve your space by logging on to www.newmediaprbootcamp.com. So another another thing that I didn't specifically mention um, is how activity streams and social objects relate. All right, because on the one hand, you and I might generate an activity stream. You know, tweets, photos that we've uploaded, uh, you know, check-ins at locations. Those are sort of like the generic things that we think about today. But social objects themselves actually have their own life streams and activity streams. So if you upload a photo, there is a, a life stream for that photo. I can go in two months later and see a number of comments and likes and favorites, and I can actually subscribe to those things if I'm interested in them. So in the same way that I can follow a GitHub project and see the stream of that, um, I guess that mechanism is the same thing that I would use to follow a person. So as I'm orienting myself to my, my work life, there will be people that I follow for a while, which means that I'm tuning into their activities. And then when I no longer, let's say, I'm working with them actively on a project, I unfollow them and I disengage from that. So when it comes down to it, I think it's more about giving people the ability to tune in and follow the stuff that is the most relevant to them at any given time, as opposed to trying to use these curated systems like the New York Times, which is a snapshot of information that doesn't necessarily provide you with the raw materials for you to build your own um, vehicle for understanding this stuff. I don't know if that kind of makes sense. I know you mentioned in your presentation, when we think of activity streams today, we think of the news feed. Yes. But the truth is, it's really you know the, the tip of the iceberg of what's possible, given all the It's just one representation of what's possible. And then, and then mm-hmm. you, compared it, you, you compared it against the information that my credit card company has. Yeah. Would you say that the information that my credit card company has is the news feed of, the bi- of business objects? Uh, I certainly think that... I mean, the, the precipice of, of a business... Yeah, you know, maybe, maybe one way to think about this is just to... You know, when I've worked at other companies, smaller companies in the past, there's these tensions between capturing and storing everything and storing nothing, right? And I kind of feel like if you have these organizational databases and you have all this information in them and yet you're not making that data available for people to actually you know reconceive of and use in novel ways you're just hoarding it you're actually sort of increase or let's say shorting the half-life of value for the information that you're storing so you've got this database that goes back years and years and if you haven't figured a way to first of all use it uh, from a retrospective perspective like I said you know with the, the annual reports that this guy creates um, then that's a, a missed opportunity. Secondly, if you're not figuring out a way to make this data available to employees of the organization to come up with a better understanding of their job or their role or the company history or how they relate to their coworkers and things like that, that's another missed opportunity. And the third piece is that as the information is being generated, there should be a way for people to tap into that stream and see what's happening in real time within the organization. 
And that, I think, in many organizations doesn't quite exist yet. And activity streams will provide a vehicle um, for getting at and then making use of and synthesizing that information using any number of tools. The dashboard that you showed yeah. was very interesting. Yeah. But given the fact that you know you have to take information and parse it into these small little nuggets that people can digest, you know, that was a lot of information on that slide. There were a lot of graphs, and I would imagine to get any real value out of it, I would have to really look and think about one of those infographics for a small piece of time. So how do infographics figure into this? Yeah. Well, actually, so... You know, my training is, is actually as a communication designer, not as a developer. And um, I think that, you know, as they say, you know, and I've said for a long time, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, I think an information graphic is worth a thousand statuses. I mean, I could sit there and read the, the Twitter news feed, you know, all day long, and I might get some kind of gestalt of what's going on, but information graphics that are able to synthesize information over a much longer period of time than I can get in one sitting or viewing... I think is where this goes. So the fact that you can actually see significant changes in this guy's behavior over a year's period of time is what's interesting about those reports. The fact that I can't go to Facebook and get a similar kind of report about my relationships with people or about the things that I've interacted with, the types of information that's relevant. Why are the Facebook ads still so bad? They have so much information about me. You know, I even give them information about my preferences with the ads. I say, I don't like this ad, I like this ad, whatever it is. There are great opportunities to improve business processes by providing these kind of self-reflected, uh, I guess, experiences and visualizations so that people can actually consume a vast amount of information in a fairly short amount of time. So it might take you five minutes staring at this infographic to make some sense of it, but I think it allows you to consume a, a quantity of information that you don't get from just an individual like status update. So many companies are sitting on mountains of data about That's how right. people use their websites. And often when I interview people at these companies about what mm. they're doing with that data, they introduce me to an intern who's yeah, looking right. at that information. The person often doesn't have the skills to yeah. really get meaningful business intelligence out of this. And last year, the New York Times ran a cover story. It said the hot school, the hot job for kids coming out of the Ivies today mm. is statistician. Yeah, I bet. They come out, they can make 150 grand as a statistician. What does... At the activity stream, say about that. Well, could you see a day when widgets replace statisticians, or will the statisticians just build the widgets? <laughs> uh, you know, I, so I think the statisticians are going to be really important. Like, you need people who are crazy good at number crunching. But I would actually argue that uh, the next hot job should be either social interaction designers or behavioral psychologists. Because the problem that we have right now is that we're doing everything based on log file analysis, namely, oh, here's an IP address, and oh, it visited this web page, and then it went to this web page, and it went to this web page, and oh, well, that must mean that they were trying to do this. And, you know, we're, we're basically, you know, it's like uh, feeling the, the trunk of an elephant and, you know, calling it a chair, or whatever that metaphor is. Because we're using such, you know, again, data-deficient resources to understand what people are doing. If instead you imagine that the people visiting your website could generate an activity stream that they could actually use and bring back to their own you know, source of data, and you could also make use of it because, hey, you're the generator of this data, I think you would have a much richer sense of what people are doing and why they're doing it than just this notion of, oh, look, you know, this person walked down this path. That must mean that they're trying to go to the store. When in fact, no, they weren't doing anything like that, but that's all that you can extrapolate because the data that you have, again, is so weak. So the statisticians are really important, but I think there's a huge blind spot in that 
uh, you know, this kind of negative space of the problem where we're not seeing that actually what we need to be looking at is what's motivating people and what behaviors they're engaging in and why they're engaging in them. Because, for example, if all you're doing is you're looking at like a spike in traffic and you say, oh, well, this is a popular article. Let's write more articles like that. It could actually be because people hate it. And they went to that page to like voice their concerns. And you wouldn't know that unless you also correlated that spike in traffic with all the negative comments that you received on that page. Right now, a lot of our statistical, uh, you know, even Google Analytics doesn't provide you a great way of correlating social signifiers and signals with what people are actually, you know, where people are spending their time and what they're doing. So I wouldn't say that, you know, gadgets, dashboards, widgets will replace statisticians. But what I would say is that if you're not thinking about this holistically from a behavioral perspective and you're not thinking about things like I presented with the activity theory, then you're missing the big picture. And you're also missing the nuance of what's going to drive people to do things, you know, more intelligently in the future. Several years back, I don't remember the exact year, but I was at CES, okay. and there was a keynote delivered by the founders of Google, and they showed a slide on the screen of a bunch of um, uh, power adapters tangled up like spaghetti, Right. and their message to the consumer electronics industry was like, look guys, we need some standards here. Mm. Mm-hmm. This is not right. Yeah. But... I'll tell you what, when I pack to come here, yep. I've got spaghetti in my case. I know. And now your job is to go out there and to say to people, hey, open standards is actually in your best interest. But this is you're talking to people who for years have thought that pro- proprietary yep. means money. Yep. So, so I guess what message do you have for businesses to encourage them that it's in their best interest to embrace open standards? Yeah. So, you know, I think... Uh, None of this stuff is actually successful unless you have an economic argument that works, you know, at the systems level. Companies make more money by having you buy four or five different plugs, you know, types, right? I mean, you know, it's just like uh, printer cartridges that are not interoperable. I mean, they make tons of money by selling you a printer or giving you a printer for free and then charging you, you know, on ink. And then, of course, you get a new upgraded printer and you can't use the ink that you already bought. Blah, blah, blah. You know, we know the story. And it's because... Well, it's, it's kind of hard to solve that problem because consumers really have no weight in the marketplace. I mean, they, they have no leverage to sort of uh, solve this problem. Now, when it comes to the social web and the web in general, I think we're starting to see a slight shift. And what I hope happens, and it's you know questionable that this is going to happen right away, but what I hope happens is that companies start to standardize in some of these basic formats, these raw formats, in order to actually elevate their game to make more compelling and interesting experiences so that people spend more time engaging with content and with people on these sites than they might otherwise. So, for example, I showed the, the Netscape portal you know, from 1999. A lot of websites still look the same way today, and it's pretty much a travesty. This is why Facebook's like killing everybody in terms of uh, engagement because people are able to spend time in Facebook and have social context for the content and stuff that they consume. When I go to, like, you know... Uh, the New York Times homepage, it's a rare day when I can see the news structured in a way that makes sense to me, that's relevant to me, as well as perhaps filter through my social connections, right? So from a similar perspective, I think uh, businesses should be thinking about how how valuable this type of social engagement or social context is to improving their offering to the world, and that increasingly people are going to be turning to their friends, colleagues, coworkers, um, and associates for information and ideas, less to big companies and that companies need to kind of be there to facilitate these interactions instead of squelch them and that the good companies the ones that actually want to compete in that type of environment are the ones that I think will do well and succeed 
So one of Google's primary um, principles is to put the user first and everything else will follow. And that seems to have done very well for them. I think Facebook, by its design and nature, has done something very similar. And they've seen the same sort of thing in terms of viral growth um, and uh, improvement of the service over, over time. Twitter has done something very similar, where the individual at the center, as opposed to the company or the brand, they're seeing similar types of success. I think we're going to see the same thing play out in other cases where if a company makes me look cool and I look cool in, my fr- in front of my friends, then now that brand looks cool through like this you know, social transit of property. So are you suggesting that a company that really does put its employees first and empower them? might be in a better position. I'm suggesting that from a competitive perspective, there will be a lot more competition for the smartest and brightest people in the future, and that those companies that treat their employees with respect and give them a fairly well-articulated space in which to operate with a good feeling of um, self-direction, you know, with enough structure so that someone can succeed, uh, will be a much more successful company overall. Um, and will be a much better place to work for everybody involved, as opposed to one that tries to really regiment their workforce and, for example, shuts down Facebook and things like that. There's a balance to the mix for sure, but finding the right way to let people do what they do well and to socialize in a way that supports their work, I think is going to be critically important. Because, for example, in the future, when I do a search on the web, if that search doesn't have any idea who I am or who my friends are, and yet I know that a friend of mine had tweeted about this thing, which would totally solve my problem right now, and I'm unable to get to that information, because, you, you know, then, then you've just slowed me down and you're costing the company more. So a way to look at this is that social networks and the social web are a way of augmenting our abilities, our innate abilities, our cognitive abilities, and our abilities to collaborate and coordinate. So, as evidenced by you know the the massacre case that you brought up, the response that people had, you know, helping one another, finding out what was going on, solving that problem for each other, I don't think could have been done from a top-down militaristic type of approach with people feeling, hopefully, you know, healed more quickly because they were able to come together and find each other and connect around this thing. And I think that similar things will happen and similar machinery will happen with work. And I'm going to want to go to work because I'm around coworkers that care about what they're doing and, and so on, and uh, are given, I think, the bounds in which to, you know, really excel. I, and that's just the way that I see it. Maybe that's a little, you know, utopian or idealistic, but I have a hard time seeing how it's going to stay the way that it's been. Chris, thanks for taking the time to do this. Yeah, appreciate it for sure. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. On the Record Online is hosted by Eric Schwartzman, an independent online communications consultant whose clients include the U.S. Department of State, the United States Marine Corps, the U.S. Embassy of Greece, the Government of Singapore, Johnson & Johnson, Toyota, Southern California Edison, the Environmental Defense Fund, and dozens of small to medium-sized organizations. For information about engaging Eric Schwartzman as a speaker, social media trainer, or digital strategist, visit www.ericschwartzman.com or send email to eric at ericschwartzman.com.